Hello everyone. So welcome to the fourth episode of Gibberish with Gerard. Um, so before I start off uh, talking about this week's topic, firstly I would like to thank uh, all of you guys for supporting the previous episode. Uh, it was honestly quite an overwhelming response, which I didn't really expect. I think we we hit about two hundred views in less than a two hundred plays. Sorry, in less than a week, and uh, I was I was really happy about it. And uh, thank you for your support, and uh, also thanks for your constructive feedback that I received from uh, you guys. Um, I think it's definitely useful, and it's something that I will uh, read about and definitely try to work on it in my future podcasts. Okay, so talking about last week, we did speak about social media and actually social media activism in particular. Before we went on to touch on topics such as fake news, mental health, etc. And um, the one thing that I realized was that media as a whole, be it your, your newspapers, your television news broadcasts, social media, anything, they can be quite misleading or misinforming. You know, at times, they, they really want you to believe that it is the full story and that and that can be very ugly because it might lead you to take a particular side without you actually realizing it. And that is extremely dangerous because you know it can make you to like it can lead you to form a particular opinion and believe that this is the truth when in actuality you do not really know what happened. So take the Ram Gate for example. I'm not going as far back as you know the Black Lives Matters mo- uh, movement, which itself happened quite recently. And uh, it, will, it is, of course, an incident that we will be talking about later. But I'm talking about an incident that happened just a couple of weeks ago. So basically what happened was um, the U.S. President Trump had a rather awkward or uneasy you know, descent down a ramp. And the media was so quick to call him out and question about his health. So uh, the New York Times, in fact, reported, you know, I quote, uh, new questions about his health. And uh, CNN also claimed that it matters because of his age and his, and his lack of transparency regarding his health records. And in response to these allegations made by the various uh, news agencies, uh, Trump tweeted, uh, trying to defend himself, saying that the ramp was um, long, steep, had no handrails and was very slippery. However, a lot of people did not agree with this because from what they saw, the ramp, it's, the ramp was not wet and people thought it was absurd to call it slippery. When in fact, right, a ramp can be slippery for all kinds of reasons. You know, like just to maybe facilitate wheelchairs, for example, you know, it has to be smooth. It has to be a rather smooth surface, which can be interpreted as slippery too. But a matter of fact is, right, the video evidence was made to be believed that it was Trump's bad health that caused him to react as such, when in reality it could have been a normal response by any aged person. I mean, if you are of that age of like 70 plus, so you're most likely to take a couple of seconds you know, just to think how you're going to approach this and just you know, take your steps slowly because that ramp has no handrails, has no support or anything and it's rather steep. But the thing about media is, right, they, they, they will have something to say anyways. You know, if, if, if Trump falls down while walking down, walking down the ramp or he takes you know, any necessary precautions, 
the media will be quick to judge and they will have definitely something to say about it. And there have also been instances where you know the Democrats like Obama or Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden, but they have they've all made slip-ups. And when I mean slip-ups, right, I mean like actual slip-ups. But the media has not covered it or speculated anything about it to the extent to which Trump's non-slip has been questioned. Come on, man, like, Trump didn't even slip. Give him, give him a break. But I'm not a Trump supporter or a Republican supporter for that matter. But sometimes, right, it's very hard to ignore that journalism fails to account for, like, the human touch. And then they just put up content so that it can gain popularity and the viewer's attention. So, do you guys see where this is going? Given the fact that the media has the power and authority to choose the way in which we conceive anything in the world, the one major drawback is media bias, something that has existed for a very long time. I'm not talking about 10 years or 20 years. I'm talking about centuries here. So yeah, today, that is going to be our topic of discussion. And to shed light on this topic, I have in fact invited one of my best friends, whom I have known know for like 12 years now which is practically more than half of my life so yeah so let's welcome Cheng Yu. okay hi guys uh this is Cheng Yu speaking uh yeah i'm just a friend of gerard uh same age you know used to be schoolmates uh and it's i've just finished ns and waiting for uni to start just like him i guess so yeah like it's nice to be it's an honor to be on your podcast today mm-hmm. you know <laughs> I I wouldn't have thought that, you know, Gerard would have started a podcast, but here I am on the fourth episode, right? So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I will say that, you know, I'm not, I don't have a degree in this stuff, you know, I'm not particularly uh, qualified to talk on it, you know, I'm not uh, really an official mm. authority, but, you know, like everyone, you know, I have views on this, so I thought it'd be interesting to share them today. Yep, Ching so, yeah, thank you for coming you know, on my fourth episode. Um, so yeah, guys, uh, if, before I start off, right, I mean, we are talking about media bias. I'll try our best, I think. We'll try our best to make sure it's not lectury and not like your Langlit lessons in A-levels or IB. <laughs> we'll try our best to be, you know, as informative as possible, but we'll also present it to you in an entertaining way and like, we'll present you the facts and, you know, probably talk more about our general views on media bias. So we'll try our best not to be lecturing about it. And um, so yeah. Okay, so Cheng Yu, let's dive straight into this week's topic, okay? Media bias. Um, what do you think about media bias? Okay, so, um, well, first of all, I think that when we think about media bias nowadays, <clears throat> you know, the first thing that comes to mind is obviously current events, you know, and uh, TV news, you know, CNN, mm. Fox News, things like that. And that's true, but I think what is a bit less obvious is the more historical perspective, you know, which I'm going to be talking quite a bit about today. And that is basically the history of media bias. So I think for anyone who's taken some kind of history class, like the most obvious one would be war propaganda, right? Mm. So it's not just uh, modern war propaganda, but World War I propaganda, World War II propaganda, things like that 
we may not think of that as media bias per se because we call it propaganda, sort of it falls in a different mental category for some of us, including me, right? But I do think that fundamentally it's the same thing. It is the media like presenting things in a particular way for some kind of purpose. So, you know, all throughout history, uh, factions at war have tried to uh, portray the other side in a unfavorable light, you know, to say the least. And uh, they do this, you know, uh, through posters, things like that. Like you would have seen from World War One, you know, famous posters from either side that you can look up online or you've probably seen from your classes. Or it also uh, comes in the form of things that you could, you know, call fake news. Um, for example, in World War One, the British, uh, some British journalists uh, reported the Battle of the Somme, which, you know, by all accounts was sort of a disaster for the British. They portrayed it as a victory, you know, a resounding victory. And uh, that was... What, what, what is interesting about this is that, of course, you know, there are army censors and things like that to stop uh, loss, news about losses and news about that, you know, that will demoralize people at home in Britain. There were army censors in place to uh, censor the news coming back from frontline journalists. But the thing is that what some of these journalists said later on uh, in retrospect is that they admitted, you know, that they didn't really need the army censors in a way uh, because they themselves, the journalists, were patriotic and they didn't really need, uh, they didn't want to uh, report news that would demoralize people back home. And that's something that we'll go, go on about a bit later, but this is just bringing up in advance since we're on the topic. Uh, so that, you know, that is quite interesting uh, where the sources of bias come from, you know, political and individual reasons. Um, and moving on from that, you know, uh, bias goes a lot earlier than just World War One. You know, I would bring it all the way back to the start of writing, honestly. Uh, it predates media in its current form. For example, you have the Egyptian hieroglyphs those uh, paintings on the walls of pyramids and uh, other you know, important buildings and things like that. These were basically op uh, oftentimes uh, propaganda reports, not unlike you know, those from World War I and things like that. There is this uh, particular incident that uh, I was reading about, which was between uh, about a war between uh, the Pharaoh, let me see, Pharaoh Ramses and the Hittites. And what this pharaoh said was that he depicted himself, you know, winning the battle resoundingly, as you do as an Egyptian pharaoh. And uh, historians argue on whether or not the Hittites had a slight, uh, came out slightly on top, or whether it was more of a draw. But the consensus is that you know it it wasn't really that much of a resounding victory. So this is again, you know, the same kind of propaganda, but back in the times of you know the pyramids and things like that. So it's not a new concept in the first place. Um, and in fact, if, you know, as soon as people started writing, they wrote for a purpose, is, is my opinion. And this is, so bias predates written media in a sense, or rather they, they, they sprung up at the same time. So moving on from ancient Egypt, if we want to trace the uh, first news sources, in a way, 
you could go to you could look at the Acta Diana of the Roman Empire. So according to my source, you know this was a primitive kind of newsletter, uh, started in fifty nine B C by Julius Caesar. You know that Roman that you might have heard about somewhere, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was basically a kind of news bulletin board that was mm-hmm. posted in public places. And uh, people would go there and read the news in a way. So this is one uh, start of a news-like service. Another one is the Kaiyuan Zabao of the Chinese Empire, which was you know uh, mostly aimed at government officials, but it is sort of like a magazine or newspaper kind of thing. But the first mass-distributed uh, newsletters that the common folk uh, had access to in Europe at least, that we know of, is the avisi, which means advice in Italian. So it gives you a hint as to you know how the idea might have started. So it, it, yeah, it started as courts in Europe wanting to know more about each other, and so they send each other letters, almost like dignitary letters. But uh, after a while, there de- they developed a system where the common folk would get to know about what happened. And in fact, after a while, these uh, avisi developed two separate systems in a way. One was the the common avisi that in a way that people, everyone had access to, and which was by reports of the time, you know, heavily censored and uh, n- more more concerned with you know propaganda in a sense. And political leaders would use these avisi to uh, further their political agenda. And the other kind of AVC is the secret AVC, um, which would contain uh, more, to, s- to put it bluntly, more important news, you know, uh, to the courts that wanted to hear about it. So, yeah, there is an account which I was reading about the other day of, like, one of the people uh, involved in the AVC business, you know, scolding someone else for sending him a common AVC as mm-hmm. opposed to... Mm-hmm. Uh, a secret one which had the actual important information. So we can see from these uh, small accounts that you know it hints at a a, a step by uh, people in power to use a VC already for censorship and for projecting a particular image that they want to use for their agenda and things like that. So it's it's not you know these kinds of things uh, go back a long way. Keep in mind also that not too long ago you know before radio and television you just in a way, you sort of had to believe what you were told or heard through word of mouth because there wasn't things like video proof, you know, or like things that like those kinds of ways of getting conclusive proof about something. Almost everything that happened outside of your immediate vicinity was brought to you by some kind of messenger or handwritten note or from someone. So... You can't really, there wasn't that much of a way to prevent uh, or fight back that much against uh, these kinds of uh, information uh, manipulations. And also, there was not really the same notion that newspapers were supposed to be objective sources of truth like we have today. It wasn't that much of a guiding notion. Of course, you know, like people uh, probably took it into account, but it wasn't a big thing that journalists you know were judged by and i think where this really comes into light is uh, during the french and american revolutions at least to me like those are the examples that i found interesting 
because in these two uh, historical events, uh, there were newspapers that took took sides, took fasc- factions, essentially, much like they do today, in a way. Um, so in the French Revolution, for example, there was the royalist faction that sided with the king, and there was the revolutionary faction that, you know, obviously sided with the revolution, and mm-hmm. they would, you know, trade... Uh, trade propaganda back and forth and trade you know twisted accounts of things and i think the more uh, one of the major things that i found interesting about the american revolution is that uh there was this event called the boston massacre and what it was was that uh there were a bunch of troops british troops back then you know the america was still a british colony of course and these British troops in Boston were being harassed by, uh, by Boston natives, right? The citizens, and basically they like it was a tense situation, and in the confusion, reportedly, uh, there were shots fired, uh, quite literally, right? And it it uh, it took people's lives in the crowd, but when it was reported throughout. Uh, colonial America, it was widely uh, distributed and announced by colonial newspapers that one sided with the revolution as a massacre by as a massacre by British troops, you know, a coordinated kind of firing squad. There's a famous image that you can search online, you know, that shows British troops almost executing unarmed citizens, you know, whereas mm. the actual situation is probably different. So this is again where you know bias comes in. Yeah, and the modern notion of uh of journalists needing to be uh sources of objective truth was mainly brought up by uh w- this guy called Walter Lippmann. Is he who championed for the the use of basically like being objective. In, I don't mm. have that much to say about <laughs> him. <laughs> Champion, you know, he championed mm. this kind of paradigm in journalism, and it was already like becoming a guiding principle by his time, and he was the one who pushed it forward. And then we run into a problem because, you know, but uh, there is this article from uh, the Times that I read, and basically it talks about how uh, people started to be quite objective after after this guy. And uh, what happened is that, by all accounts, people's senators started taking advantage of this to try and, uh, like, basically there was no check. The media didn't do you know, things like fact-checking and things like that. And that allowed, you know, unadulterated manipulation from politicians mm-hmm. through the media. So we come to this problem where, you know, is it really, is bias always a bad thing? Because if you just report what, happens you know like in a way it's it's ideal but you, you could have you know like we see here you could have unintended side effects okay Cheng Israel uh, thank you for your history crash course <laughs> more or less uh, okay my pleasure <laughs> all right so um so you're saying like media bias exists like since you know ancient Egypt times and you know of course to the current day um, so there has to be some reasons why people have been tolerant, you know, with it. 
and why it continues to exist right even if it could be misleading at times so um so let's really understand why so let's let's explore it from three different viewpoints okay so let's let's take a thought uh top to bottom approach so uh with the first one being political reasons so can, can you explain more about like the possible political reasons you know that results in media bias so um i think political reasons is mainly here because it's the most obvious one but also mm. because it's the most obvious one i don't have that much to say about it that i have not already talked about in the history section yeah, because yeah, right, yeah. yeah because most of the historical examples were you know uh political biases with factions trying to uh mm. talk about each other with and push their own agendas so yeah and this is also where most of us talk about uh, uh during current affairs because you know most of the news that involves media bias in popular demand is in a pop in the popular view is current affairs so yeah that's that's political reasons honestly shall mm. we talk about societal reasons okay yeah so i think the next part right it's really like to do with the corporate world you know like given human tendencies you know it makes sense for us to capitalize on it because eventually right i mean i mean practically speaking eventually boils down to you know, a number of reads number of cells and the money made you know like no one really cares about the quality of content you put out there you know if you know if if it doesn't sell well like you can put a top notch article it's totally unbiased and it's, it's it's like really explaining what happened it's presenting you to the right facts and giving you probably you know a view of both sides but those kind of articles do not probably you know gain the kind of attention that they deserves and people usually you know just try to go for the ones that might be controversial in nature so yeah i think that's why you know we have these journalists and news agencies uh you know taking these extreme approaches you know to just appeal to the audience because uh they feel like you need that kind of a media bias and you know you need to present it constantly as a news uh agency company because they've already built a certain brand image for themselves and they have to live up to it so so yeah i think that's that's one of the reasons you know why media bias continues to exist and um so chicky do you have anything to say about it yeah i guess like the one thing that i would add in here is this is where i think the concept of echo chambers comes in mm. because you know within human society people want to be comfortable with people with other people who agree with them i think this also ties into what you said about brand names you know because uh, or brand images rather because this is where uh I don't think the sole reason for uh companies to uphold these brand images is just for monetary benefit although of course like that is a big portion of it but I think it's also a uh, more uh, more deeply rooted thing in uh, our human society the nature of human society that we like to be comfortable with people around us who agree so yeah that's that's what I have to say about it now let's go on to perhaps individual reasons the reasons why you know people uh individuals would want to be biased or might find themselves unknowingly being biased mm. yeah actually yeah, i mean continuing from your your previous point right i feel I means innate within human nature to just 
favor and like constantly sought after those sensational news you know breaking news i mean come on i mean all of us just love news that is interesting and just that, that you know news that keeps us on our heels like you know take for example you know, those terrorist attacks you know celebrities committing suicide or i mean the current global health pandemic more often than not you know it's, it's something it's the controversial news that takes the limelight and um and just like seems like you know all other pieces all other important pieces of in, uh, news becomes irrelevant no matter how big the issue is so i think it's, it's just to do with our human nature that we like those things we pay attention to those kind of news which really incorporates media bias to a great extent yeah i think you have it right there uh i concur i also think that there's another insight here that we can uh we can see which is not just that you know people like sensational news which is true uh or that they want to listen to mm. stuff that is interesting uh because it, it makes them engaged you know uh, and it captivates the audience but also that even when people are not having like listening to news to have fun in a way um i think there is an inherent trait of people that makes them biased and what this is is not just bias i'm not talking about just bias in media but in the people who listen to the media themselves i think after that dive into history you know uh we need to n- see that the natural tendency of newspapers to favor one side or another apart from monetary or political pressure is also because newspaper journalists and editors themselves are just people like us right mm. and genuinely believe in one faction or another i think the most pertinent example was the the world war 1 where example where the journalists themselves didn't want to rep- report possibly demoralizing news mm. you know so these they these reporters probably genuinely believe in the correctness in a way of the spins that they give stories sometimes they probably don't even view it as spin at all because obviously they have to write what is most correct from their points of view or at least that is easiest mm. for them right yeah and again i would like to point out that you know relatively recently only has this ideal of objectivity uh, in journalism been stamped into its ethos before that it wasn't even a thing that people strongly associated with journalism it was just like journalists were just people out there sort of like a professional version of your friend who tells you what happened what over happened. yeah with his group you know over mm. there yeah professional gossip in a way you could say <laughs> and at its at its worst yeah okay i think that's that i think um nicely leads us to the next point which is basically you know comparing media bias in the past to the present so i mean you were saying in the past journalists were like you know almost professional gossipers but Yeah I mean can you explain more about how media bias um may differ like maybe you know the examples you stated previously to maybe current day news what what exactly is the difference I think the uh, so the differences between you know history versus now in terms of the whole ecosystem to say mm-hmm. about uh, around news and media is that nowadays as just as back then you know nowadays still most information that you hear about comes from others right because yeah. i mean even though you are hearing uh 
new like stuff on the television instead of coming on horseback mm. you know it's still from other from people who have a chance yeah. and probably a reason to manipulate the news mm. knowingly or unknowingly but what i think is different now versus back then is that nowadays we have more sources of information we are bombarded you know with i'm going to give the cliche talk about social media you know like yeah. it's just <laughs> like we are bombarded by these things and mm. uh, i think that is the difference in addition to of course the possibility of things like video proof for certain things although of course that may not be always conclusive but there is a chance of you being able to see things that are not so easy to forge or manipulate because of technology i think uh, another thing that we can talk about is the uh, political motivations now versus back then because you know politicians have been politicians are politicians and always will be politicians in my view so <laughs> the motivations that politicians have to uh, project a positive image of themselves and perhaps you know paint a negative image of someone else mm. i think it's uh, pretty similar now versus back then it's just that the avenues for that politicians use to try and convince us have diversified you know um not just in terms of like the media like tv shows you know ads mm-hmm. and things like that but also the way they convince us and the the cultural values that they use to get us on their side may be different from back then but still you know politicians uh want to push an agenda and that's not always bad like i i say it like it's a very bad thing but <laughs> but uh yeah we'll get into that later on and uh societal pressures is another thing that we can talk about um because you know now as just was as, as it was back then we have society and society pressures societal pressures and uh conformity in a way is uh i wouldn't say enforced but you know it's uh encouraged in certain scenarios and that is i think the same as it was back then it's just that the viewpoints to conform to are different now you know than back then like obviously that it the the viewpoints that you would have in a society that people would rally around would change with the historical situation right we don't currently mm. have royalists and and revolutionaries in france for example but i think the core of it the 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 social implication is still there in that people form groups and based on you know what they think and i think one last thing that i would talk about is just human nature you know obviously i just like to point out that human nature is has been the same yeah so i mean that's that's yeah. something that that, that is just yeah that is just something right? that you know just to point it out that's a common yeah. thread right so that's by all the differences something has stayed constant throughout yeah yeah okay so yeah so that's that's interesting so um so chengyu let's let's talk about current day media bias so i think um that's something very important and that you know should something that's definitely something that we should discuss about in our podcast today uh so can you can like just maybe give a few current day examples and just explain what happens in media bias and how exactly it impacts each and every one of us okay so if we're talking about this subject let's bring it back to current examples right uh first of all i think what comes to mind is you know what you hear in the news uh for me that will be uh trump <laughs> okay so i'm not my point here is not really to take sides 
uh, all this, but rather to just observe both sides and uh, try and say what I think about them. So, um, obvious. I think one of the benefits of uh, today's uh, technology is that we have uh, audio recording such as this, and therefore, you know, you hear in the news uh, how Trump has been, almost, you know, proven to contradict himself with mm. uh, various comments over time. So I think uh, this is one example of uh, bias. Well, is is bias uh, in the sense that you know different news channels tend to cover this uh, propensity of Trump to contradict himself in differing rates. You know, now yeah. of course channels which support Trump would uh, rather not focus like, on it like that Fox much. News, uh, yeah, I guess the, yeah, yeah, that's the that's the main thing, right? That people mm. think about, yeah. And uh, so that is one part of it. I think the other the other half of it is, uh, for me personally, uh, one show that I view a lot is uh, Stephen Colbert's talk show. But uh, one thing that I have like felt uh, in my personal view is that over the years that Trump has been in office, you know, <coughs> Colbert is obviously left leaning, and he has taken this to like a. An increasing ex an increasing extent, in the sense that every almost everything you know that you hear uh, as he, he has gone through the years is like everything that Trump uh, says must be criticized in some way or must be made fun of in some way. Even if you know these are things that are relatively minor, you know these are more like jabs that generally he Stephen Colbert just doesn't like this guy. You know you can feel that through, or at least I can feel that through. Uh, the program so these are just you know things that happen in current media that uh, I would like to you know just touch on to give us all an idea of where I come from in talking about media bias mm. so how it impacts us I guess is a, uh, a bit more complicated or a lot more complicated uh, so I would like to talk about uh, the issue of uh, black lives matters right like the m most current thing that everyone's talking about now uh, and in particular, I would like to talk about this uh, open letter that has been sent by an unnamed professor in UC Berkeley. And uh, what this, I'm not, again, I'm not here to say which side I support and things like that. Rather, I would basically like to point out that this open letter, uh, which uh, by this professor, to me, after having read it, it seems like it is a reasoned argument in the most yeah. fundamental sense of reasoned mm. argument that they provide reasons. You know, mm. Whether you agree or disagree with them is a different matter. But what I'm saying is that you know, this is not some kind of incoherent rant you know, with no... Like uh, baseless. Yeah, um, baseless accusations and things it was like a that. Proper, it was like a proper argument, like a proper reasoned argument. Yeah, mm. that you know, at the very least could be uh, uh, discussed and what has happened is that because of the uh, the you know the culture of the 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 stance of the university basically provides an environment that basically makes it hard for this professor to speak out comfortably mm. because this like they say in their we, we don't even know their gender right they say in the letter that they are not able to speak out in name because uh, they would lose their job otherwise and uh, the university has sort of a 
indirectly confirm this because they have publicly condemned the statement and things like that. So basically, my point is that the uni- the university provides an environment that is biased in the sense that you know, uh, these kinds of um things are suppressed from being as fully discussed as they could be. Mm. Uh, because they uh, do not con the vast majority of people do not condone these views and therefore they would not like to listen to anyone who has an opposing view. There are arguments made to be made against this and I will discuss those later. Um, so, but anyway, in some ways I feel that this kind of stance by the university does defeat the point of an argument. I view this as an argument between the two sides in a way, right? Uh, and it defeats the point of an argument in the sense that I feel that one of the most important purposes of genuine arguments, meaning arguments where there are no like hidden monetary incentives to, you know, support one side, genuine arguments where in genuine arguments where people truly believe in what they say and still argue, I believe that one of the most important purposes of these genuine arguments is for each of the two people involved to boil down the reasons why they have their differing opinions, which they do, um, both for their own benefit as well as for the other party's benefit. The purpose of an argument, to put it another way, is for each party to try and realize the assumptions that they themselves and the other party have made in each of their decision processes, which have in turn you know, led to their differing beliefs. And I feel that once you get to the crux, you know, the fundamental disagreement between the two of you, then it is easier for both parties to make some kind of productive decision, you know, based on this mutual understanding. So um, if, you know, if two parties who are arguing with each other about a certain topic have made different base assumptions of that topic or even about the other party or their motivations and agendas, then I feel it is easy to see how miscommunications can arise, mm. which lead not just to arguments, but like further arguments, but more crucially to arguments which are fundamentally useless in that these two parties will never get down to this fundamental issue of disagreement between them. And therefore, they will never be able to usefully work things out uh, through the aforementioned mutual understanding. So to bring it back to the Berkeley issue, in cases like the Berkeley issue, when the university foster, uh, fosters this kind of culture that suppresses, um, you know, s- opposing certain opposing views, I feel that you know this is where this comes into play, right? Because um, the university and this uh, professor may not ever have the chance to work it out properly between them. And of course, you know, it's not always the case that this kind of mutual understanding that I talk about purely by itself can resolve conflicts. You know, in the end, the two parties might know exactly fundamentally why they disagree, but they still cannot unify their views. And this is a fact of reality. However, I think even in this worst case scenario, at least both parties do know that there is no more point to convincing the other side through persuasion and, you know, insults. Hopefully then, you know, some kind of more practical rather than idealistic compromise can be reached which is, in my opinion, a different matter altogether. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in this way, you know, also just to mention, I believe that assuming both sides have access to the same facts, I believe that a great many arguments can be boiled down 
to these conflicting base assumptions and beliefs you know you might take them to the extent that you call them axioms although i assume that has its own technical kind of detail but for casual purposes like you know you might call them axioms if two people uh let me see yeah there is of course you know <laughs> i want to say a good reason that we assume things so it's not for no reason that you know we have this kind of tendency to do this because it is natural and useful in day-to-day -day discourse you know in matters which are more light-hearted or relatively trivial you know it is useful that we have these automatic assumptions that help us to fill in the blanks in situations when we are not presented with every single fact and when we have no time or you know no motivation to inquire further for clarification for example, a very trivial example is, you know, if I were to say that I, I don't like so-and-so, you know, you might assume that I would not like to work with so-and-so, you know, but even in this trivial, which is a reasonable kind of assumption for day-to-day -day stuff, but even in this trivial example, you know, there can arise misunderstandings because maybe I don't like to work with so-and-so, but I would still have to work with them because they have some kind of ability or, you know, some other thing that I would be willing to you know, uh, go overstep my personal likes and dislikes for, you know. So uh, my point is that, you know, the world is complicated, basically. Like, these assumptions can be useful, but they can also lead to, you know, misunderstandings that you would have to dig deep and boil down to sort of straighten out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and, you know, I believe that in events which are not trivial and in which there are many conflicting viewpoints, even conflicting facts, you know, these days, from many different parties, you know, perhaps each with their own agendas, you know, then definitely we must take efforts to, you know, at least be aware of this and uh, figure out where these uh, assumptions come into play, which might cause very severe consequences. So, you know, when dealing with issues where much is at stake and where there are many conflicting uh, viewpoints, I think this is where, especially like this Berkeley issue, you know, this is where ideally I think there is an argument to be made that uh, these people should, like, there should be an environment in the university where this professor can speak out without uh, some kind of uh, apprehension. Yeah, some kind mm. of uh, rebuke being made against them, you know. But of course, whether that is practical or not is a different issue. This is just like my idealism playing in here. Mm. So I've been talking about bias, you know, from a mainly negative point of view however i i do think that there is i think i i talked about this that i may say this earlier that you know there is some kind of benefit to bias or at least the fundamental concept of bias wait so you are so you're saying that media bias can be a good thing or, or it can be justified um very cautiously yes uh i so basically my point of view here is that bias does help us to champion causes, right? Like mm. the whole point, uh, I think brought out especially by like historical examples is that bias is sort of how history is written. It is uh, sort of the majority vote, you know, in the sense that most people think that this is how we should do things and therefore uh, we go that way. And of course, like a majority vote, to bring it back to the example, you know, this is where, like, because we have made that majority vote implicitly, uh, then 
um, some voices which were not in the majority uh, are not heard. So this is sort of like a neutral point because, you know, at, at on one hand, bias helps us to champion these causes. It helps us to get, get a direction and get things done, you know, to champion uh, the university, you know, the, basically to champion, in this case, the university stance on Black Lives Matter, mm. right? But then, of course, we have to take into account that uh, that means there is a cost to that, that in my view is sort of unavoidable, right? It is sort of like you have to crack some eggs to make an omelette. And in this case, like the cost of it is that technically not every view is being is heard. being heard. In, in this case, you know, this professor's yeah. view. And uh, at an even more, you know, uh, fundamental nature, I think that the nature of arguments themselves uh, needs bias in order to function, you know. Mm. Um, because bias, when, you know, reasoned and... Uh, basically like thought of logically uh, bias when reasoned and recognized gives everyone their individual opinions and promotes discussion and thoroughness when groups make decisions you know, again like sort of like the majority mode metaphor that I was going into earlier um, and not just in arguments but also just in the case of discussions at all you know you have to have a point of view uh, in order to have which is based on probably your own fundamental axioms of your moral values and like what you think is most important that is where mm. your bias and your point of view comes from and therefore you know this podcast in a way is is my is me expressing my bias towards this issue this is what i generally think uh, mm. this issue is like the nature of it and uh yeah like you can have a different point of view like that's i think you know part of the the point of this discussion right i yeah. hope you have your <laughs> useful bias as well mm. okay Chang, so um it was a good point but can you explain why we should care about media bias like why is it important that we pay close attention to media bias okay i think that you know, this, okay, I think it's going to be a bit of a common sense talk, but the world is not a bit of roses, right? Much of our information, mm. uh, just like in back in history, like I said, it still has to come from other people. And it still remains, like it always has, that in order, of, in order for each of us to be our own masters, or at least to s strive to be our own masters, to have that kind of independence that makes us individuals and unique and useful, we must be able to stand on our own two feet and have the ability to filter information according to our own sources and critical judgment, you know. Yeah, so basically, like, if you don't have, if you don't care about media bias, you subject yourself to a lot more, uh, a lot more manipulation, possibly, you know, things like that. Mm. Yeah, okay, so I mean, so you say, if you do not pay attention to media bias, there is a possibility of us getting manipulated. Uh, so my next question would be, how are we going to stop that from happening? How are we going to reduce the impact of media bias? And, uh, and do, you, do you think we can really do this? No, is, it, is, it, is it practical in the current day and age, you know, especially given the fact that we have so, so many you know, various kinds of news sources and information from you know every corner of the world with so much of you know like we are being bombarded by information every day 
So do you think with that kind of, the, the amount of information we have, do you think it's possible to reduce the impact of media bias? Mm, yes. So, uh, you know, in school and things like that, uh, they will, you know, they will caution you against media bias. And if you take like English lessons on that subject, they will say that we should all be, you know, uh, very uh, watchful over these things. But I'm, you know, I th- I'm going to take a middle road here. I think it is impractical. It is impractical to deeply investigate every little thing that we come across, you know. I do feel, you know, and this might be a bit surprising based on what I've been saying earlier, that we can't be expected to always background check our sources or trace each one back to some hard proof, you know, or read every single viewpoint or statistic or fact about something, you know. Hopefully I've not made any mistakes about facts earlier, but you know, if I have like, <laughs> you, you need, you need to, you need to, uh, basically like, it's not something that I can hundred percent scientifically guarantee you, you know, that I have not made a mistake, uh, and so on and so forth. So we are busy yeah, and we are not always able to be our own journalists. You see, it is practical in my opinion, and it's okay to form opinions with imperfect information. In fact, you know, depending on what you consider imperfect information, even if we tried, even if we were, shall I say, you know, very suggestively professional journalists, even if we were professional journalists, for instance, I feel it's impossible for us to keep up with the sheer volume of conflicting sources and information that we hear from, you know, that you were talking about. And even if we do somehow magically, you know, know everything there is to know about, like, facts-wise about a subject, I feel that we are all still people. And fundamentally, by, like, definition, you know, because we are people, any kind of inference or judgment that we make based on those facts, even if we have all the facts, those judgments... Uh, we can't be sure that we aren't ourselves biased. In fact, like, I feel that we are always, by definition, biased. However, I feel that the most important thing we can do and the most effective thing we can do that is practical is to be aware of this, to be aware of our own constant state of you know, imperfect information and bias. Not just you know, aware of other biases in the media and aware of biases in other people, but in ourselves. I think that we need to be aware of our own fallibility when it comes to, you know, judgments at all, like thought processes in general. This is going to be like a, it relates to everything, right? Because this is, is a very general topic. And, you know, what do we do with this awareness? It's not just awareness. I feel that with this awareness, we need to learn to judge slowly, to be always aware that there can be new sources of information at any point in time, you know, that give the matter a complexity that you have so far not yet thought of. Actually, it might not even be a complicated kind of misunderstanding, right? Like, it might be a relatively simple one. You know, let, let's say some, some kind of false assumption about an easily provable fact. So, I mean, I clearly remember this when uh, last year in 2019, right? So I was in camp and uh, we were about to book out and that's when the 2019 Christchurch uh, mosque attack took place. So I saw it on a Facebook post. You know, it was a Facebook post by BBC where they said breaking news, you know, people are being killed in a mosque in Christchurch. So 
um, I read the article, of course, and I think one of the opening lines itself mentioned that it was a white uh, person who went in and decided to shoot people. And yes, uh, so I just read the article and everything. I went, I exited the article, and I decided to read the comments on the, of the Facebook post to see what people think about it. And to my surprise, a lot of people just commented saying that, you know, all Muslims are terrorists, you know, send them out of New Zealand. You know, New Zealand does not deserve um, Muslim extremists. And and they were just, they were just ranting about, you know, a lot of Muslims, like, they just feel that a lot of Muslims are terrorists and they just automatically assumed that the guy who did this particular terrorist attack was also a Muslim. And I found it super or like extremely absurd because the opening line of the article literally said it was a white person. So how do you, th- so how do you think you know like, in such a case, how do you think that people get such facts wrong and they go on to assume a lot of things? How do you think that can be reduced? Okay, first of all, uh, maybe just to prove a point here, but how would you assume that this white person is not a Muslim? all right so my my point is you know like i think this is an honest like is an honest mistake just like the honest mistakes that you know people make Mm. i don't think that you know it is something that you know someone should be condemned for and and forever you know like like silenced because they have like made mistakes about the facts i think that you know of course we try to reduce these assumptions and things like that uh, and and reduce these kinds of uh, uh, sort of misunderstandings of of fact, you know, like of easily provable facts. Yeah. But when these new sources of information arise, I think I think the okay the main point I'm getting uh, getting at here is that I don't think it is possible for us to completely stop this, mm. you know, practically because you know we are prone to these kinds of things. I mean, we should strive to do that but it's sort of like aiming at the stars right you aim at the stars to get to the moon and how like uh what we should do as well in addition to striving to eradicate these kinds of assumptions is also to uh, strive to learn when these assumptions happen you know so when i think what is important for you know people is that when these new sources of information arise you know, especially in complex and serious political and societal matters, we need to consider them seriously, even when we already feel like we know the facts or we know all that there is to know on a subject. Because, you know, a new fact could come out or like you could just realize that you have made an assumption that was wrong. And what is important here is that you are able to change your view, you Mm. see. You yeah. must always be prepared to question and change your own opinion. You that's, see? that's very, very important. Yeah, this is not to say that, you know, you must accept the source of information, anything that you come across, but that you must analyze it properly before making the judgment and have a reason behind accepting or rejecting or just not, like, like remaining neutral. I feel that it is okay in some cases to say that I just don't know enough about the subject to make a stand in one way or another. Uh, which I will talk about later. But yeah, so the main thing is that you are never 100% sure about your opinions or assumptions on practical matters. And when you do make mistakes, because you will make mistakes, you know, like, uh, yeah, you should just 
be able to change and accept that you have made a mistake. I think that is one of the most important things that we're going to talk about here because these things happen, right? And I do think that there should be an air of forgiveness around this, depending on the situation, of course. Like, if it's a genuine mistake, I think there should be some kind of uh, air of forgiveness around these uh, assumptions happening. But, of course, you know, if the person proves to just be in it and, uh, like, not, not, not genuine, but, you know, just... Uh, doing it for ex- the sake of doing it. Yeah, espousing hate, you know, for the mm-hmm. sake of hate and things like that. Then, of course, that's a different matter. And last but not least, like, when something is done, this is just uh, the, the next topic, when something is done that resonates with your own point of view, political leaning or whatever, right, we must remember to still question it. You know, could it be going too far? I feel that oftentimes uh, the opposite end of what I what we were talking about earlier is that we don't tend to question views that generally align mm. with ours, you know, even if they take things to a greater extent than we would have thought reasonable if we would had been the ones doing it ourselves, or even if they neglect other principles that we would have personally felt, you know, kind of important and hard to leave out. In this way, I feel that factions have a tendency to breed ext- some form of extremism, you know, in terms of values without people even realizing, because once we pass a certain view that is slightly aberrated from our own, we accept it, and we are then susceptible to accepting even further, furtherly <laughs> warped views. Mm. And it can be a bit of a vicious cycle, you know, until the final result is that we have all wholeheartedly adopted a view that is not our own. That is to say that our own views end up being stripped, you know, of all the individual nuances and moral details and personality that, and judgment and reason, most importantly, that make us, you know, individuals. Now, I said earlier that it's okay for our views to change and we must be able to change our views. But the caveat to that, in my opinion, is that we must each be the ones controlling our own change fundamentally, you know, with outside input, but we must be the ones uh, making the decision on changing our own views. And in this scenario, you know, when I'm talking about basically an echo chamber, right, uh, we are not. Rather, you know, it is some kind of blind herd allegiance and we can have allegiances and factions and other people with whom we greatly agree on certain issues, right? We just must have them and not be them. Okay, Chang, I think that's, that was a reasonable explanation. But, but anyway, what do you think about negative partisanship in politics? So what is negative partisanship, actually? Okay, so negative partisanship right, is basically when... Uh, so let me just take the U.S. Uh, for example. So you have the Democrats and the Republicans, but the problem is, right? They, the thing is, they they do not want the opposition to win, and um and that kind of overpowers, even the misunderstandings that they might have within their own particular party. So a Democrat, for example, might not totally agree with all the ideas within the Democratic Party, but the fact that they do not want the Republicans to win causes them to just support their democratic leader. And that results in what I call the negative partisanship. So I assume what you're talking about here is like a, some, some kind of divergence in the party ideology, right? Like a fracture or something like that? Actually, no, it's, it's, it's not like a fracture, okay? So the thing is, right, there is a, it's like a, there's a total ideological split within the democratic party. So I'm quoting this from one of the recent interviews where they interviewed one of the House representatives 
It's Hassan Minaj, right? Yeah, right? yeah, it was from Hassan Minaj. In fact, his interview, and uh, he said that so he was interviewing basically uh this house representative house representative, uh AOC, and she was basically saying that it's not a fracture. It's more like two different limbs. So there's like a ideological split within the Democratic Party itself, but the problem is. It's like despite the disagreements between the the progressives and the moderates within the party, uh, although a lot of things they do not align, a lot of ideas they do not align with each other. Complete disagreement, is it? Yeah, like total complete disagreement. Mm. But the problem is here, here is that they do not want the Republicans to win. So eventually, although they do not agree with each other within the same party, they are willing. To sacrifice that bit in order to win the majority in the house. Okay, so um, I think this still doesn't really change what I was going to say of whether or not it's a fract, a slight fracture, or whether or not it's a total and complete, you know, um, dissonance. I think that um, what what this is is basically. Uh, it's a slightly different kind of uh, situation than what I was talking about earlier, right? About mm. you know changing like sort of like uh, like warping your own point of view without thinking about it. I think what what this is in a case is a practical matter, and therefore these are different circumstances. I think in this case, um, what what has to be done is that you know when there is what we are talking about here is a practical implementation of policies and laws and things like that and when you are you know implementing a practical policy and things like that you have to have some kind of unified uh unified implementation no matter what right you mm. can't implement two things at once so you have to compromise in this case and this is different from what i was saying before because what i was talking like what as long as the people who make these compromises right and make these concessions still like they do that in the furtherance of their own like beliefs like in the end like they don't lose track of why they made the compromise the the main thing that they were that they were rooting for in the first case i feel that it might it might arise that you need to you know make compromises in order to uh further whatever your view is but the main then that's okay in my view but the main thing is that you can't lose track of what you have internally as a belief if you need to make practical compromises i think that's a slightly mm. different thing so it's sort of like an alliance in wartime right yeah it's like uh mm. you you know sometimes even if you hate the other side you still have to you know, uh, make alliances and things like that in order to bring i think that's different because again you know this is uh, this is not as long as you remember what you originally stand for, and you don't change that without reason. I think it's okay. Like these practical things are a different matter. It sort of reminds me of uh, one other situation I saw. Uh, you know, I forgot where it was. Some TV program where a boy was, uh, you know, interviewed uh, about why he supported Trump, and you know, the reason that he gave was, oh, I, uh, I don't really care that much about what Trump says. If if I remember correctly, or something like that. I don't really care about, you know, Trump's other policies. The main thing is that I want abortions to stop. And I think that this is a very similar kind of situation that I can't really, you know, give a definite, a blanket. I don't think it's right to give a blanket kind of judgment on these things, like should you compromise or should you not? 
because it really depends on your individual point of view, your individual bias. If I can lay, I can drop that word again. You know, the individual bias that you have, which no one can say definitively. You know, be the final judge of whether it's right or wrong. Uh, it really depends on what you think is most important. What I think is fund, you know, more more important is that you make those whatever decision you make on that, you retain what makes you you, and you you retain your beliefs. You know, you don't change them for no reason. So if you make compromises like that, yeah, it's up to you. I'm not sure if I agree with this boy. You know, uh, I'm not sure if I don't agree with this boy. But whatever that boy is doing, you know. As uh, I feel that, um, as long as he sticks to what he believes in, you know, from that boy's point of view, for his sake, in a way, uh, I think that is all right. Whether or not I believe with that mm. detail is a different matter, like the abortion thing. Yeah. So I think with that we have you know pretty much covered a lot of things that we wanted to talk about media bias today, and I think you gave a very wholesome explanation about a lot of things. So like before we round off this episode, right? Um, I remember you telling me last week that you know you have this idea, I suppose, um, to really like counter this uh problem of media bias in the society. Yeah. And it goes <laughs> by the name of Steno, right? <laughs> so uh, would you like to explain more to the audience then? Okay, it sounds it sounds very grand and professional because I gave it a name, but honestly, that doesn't mean anything. Like uh. It's basically a format that I is an idea. It's not is not really yet materialized into anything. You know, mm. it's more than anything else. I think it's a format for reporting on issues. Um, so what Steno is is that if let's say I were to uh, report uh, a bombing, right? Uh, this is like the most trivial example that I can come up with. Let's say the court. A tenant of Steno is that if I rec- if I report a bombing, I'm the BBC and I report a bombing in place X, I would not in Steno I would not say that there has been a bombing in X as my first line. What I say first is, BBC has released a video into the public domain, and uh, the reporter infers that this video shows that there mm. has been a bombing in X. So it sounds like a very, you know, like con- a contrived kind of thing for this trivial example. And in some ways it sort of is. But the point of Steno is not for these, uh, you know, like things. Uh, rather it's for more complicated matters, you know, let's say a court trial or things like that. So instead of saying, you know, politician X threatens politician Y and that is the headline, you know, uh, you would instead say that Basically, you put the source first. You put the material first. What that guy said, you know, and things like that. So basically, you are like breaking down the entire all the information that you get into different sort of categories. Yeah, yeah. So mm. what I'm trying to do is basically, you know, when I touched earlier on the nature of arguments, you're trying to boil down things, right? And this is like the most like idiot-proof way to do it. So in Steno, you break down things into uh, the people involved, which I call actors. You know the the th- things that have the evidence, which mm. I call material. So it could be something that someone said. The more specifically, the rec- the video file of that person saying something that is the material. And lastly, you have an event, which I call a recording, which is one actor passing a material to another actor. So basically, what what it enforces is 
a source-based reporting format where everything has to be in this format of this person passed this material to this other person. And then if the reporter wants to say anything that they inf- like on top of that, it is explicitly marked as a reporter's inference. inference yeah. yeah, and because of that, you know, it can be like not very reader friendly in like the state that I have it currently. And so I think it's more probably more useful for settling disputes, you know, where mm. people, you know, have to like read every single detail. And um, for let's say, you know, like a major news company releases something uh, like for the public consumption, then they can also release like the like they do now, right? Like they release a, a, a news clip, you know, on, on the air. Then at the same time, they could also release like a steno file corresponding to that, so that if anyone wants to, you know, um, it's sort of like the source file, right? In computing terms, if if anyone wants to uh, investigate or may disagree with or have qualms with the way that BBC has has uh, reported. reported on the like thing, they can look at the steno file and do things like this. But you know, this is so I'm not I'm not really a programmer at this point. St- so it's it's implemented like a programming language, but it's, it's like a markup language. Mm. So um, basically it's, it's in development currently. And uh, yeah, I think it's the more important part of this is just the idea that, you know, everything is uh, either, everything is either a source or an inference. And that it should be a hard distinction that we enforce. So that if you want to trace back things, you know, you know why the person said this. This is boiling down the arguments. You know, you can trace back his argument to the facts, and, and each each step of his reasoning, and that's where you you know you point out the base, like uh, the crux mm. of the disagreement between you, whether it be a moral issue or log- reasoning difference or things like that. the The last thing is also that Steno has a, as I implemented currently, has a way of tracing back trees of events. You know, this is just so that uh, people can see, you know, which events other people think are related and why. So, yeah, that's, it's just under development. So it's just a, a, an interesting Basically, idea. Basically, that whole thing helps us to reduce media bias in a sense. Like, it's easier for people to... To criticize, to criticize media bias. Like, like, there just is, take there two is pieces still of article, mm. like two steno files in your thing, and mm. it's easier for the reader to see where exactly the writer differs in opinion mm. and where exactly that inference, you know, the difference in inference is made. Yeah, Steno itself doesn't fight media bias, mm. but rather it makes, the, it forces the bias to be explicit. So the reporter still has room to, you know, yeah, be yeah. biased. And I think there should be room to be biased because otherwise, if you can't make inferences on facts, right, it's then there's no negative. point yeah. having the facts. But yeah. yeah, it just makes this uh, more explicit so that we can have more productive discussions. Yeah, mm. I've been rambling for a while. I think that's just the main <laughs> point of Steno. So yeah. Yeah, but I, I think that's a great idea. In fact, you know, I think I really liked it when I first heard it, and I think it, um, of course, I'm, it might it might have some room for improvement and such. Definitely. Yeah, but still, you know, I think it's a great idea, and I think it's a right step forward. You know, if we are going to, uh, talk about media bias, you know, if we are going to do something about it, I think ideas as such really need to be implemented or worked upon so that. We can try to reduce it, reduce the impact of media bias. Let's say. Okay, so I think with that we have pretty much come to the end of our episode. So um, I I hope you guys learned a lot about media bias today. I think 
we hope that we have been able to uh, pass you guys as as much of information we possibly could give you uh, on media bios so before we go before we end this episode uh Chengyu, do you have any last words like what do you want to say before we stop this recording i think the my last words in this you know would be that when you act you know know that you are acting on imperfect information in my in my opinion by definition right and especially if the matter is one where misjudgments have serious consequences i urge you to be extra cautious and always consider whether the cost of acting on imperfect information is more or less than the cost of inaction i'm not you know saying that it is more or it is less i think that is up to you to decide and that is the whole point it really is up to you it's not in my opinion it's not really a cop out to go to middle ground i think i have to do because that is the point i think we have to take a middle ground and leave things up to the individual scenarios um and also you know we have the general elections coming up soon right in singapore where we are so uh maybe you know just as an exercise in this you could keep out for keep an eye out for the materials that come your way during that period yeah. and see what happens yeah and i think okay my last last words i mm. apologize for rambling throughout this whole thing but my last last words are that this podcast is the product of two 21 year olds sitting in their home you know recording something and obviously we are not some kind of authoritative source hopefully we've not made factual mistakes i yeah. hope not but yeah you could check and tell us if we do you know and uh, i would appreciate that and uh, but yeah like don't just take our word for it like that's the whole point <laughs> like yeah. don't take this podcast word for yeah, like for it like it just be biased in yeah a, it in is biased right yeah. this is this is uh, these are our views and our views might change right i mean Let us know if you disagree, and depending, our views might or might not change. Your views might or might not change after this podcast. You be the judge of your views. I'll be the judge of my views. You know that is again, you know, the sort of the whole point of this. And as long as we make reasoned arguments, hopefully things will turn out fine. I hope this feels more like a discussion than a broadcast. You know, trying to sound authoritative when it really is just the views of two people who happen to be doing a podcast. People like you. And so you have mm. your bias, you know. I encourage you to go out and fact check everything, or you know, at least know that take what we say into effect. But if there is corrections to be made to what we have said or to what you think about what we have said, then, then we yeah, are open to it yeah, sure, yeah, just just consider that. Yeah, so I think that was very well put by Cheng Yu. So I think that basically brings us to the end of the episode, and uh, so hope you guys continue supporting um, this whole podcast channel. And uh, till next week, this is Jarat signing off from Gibberish with Jarat. Goodbye.